Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Jay Varma. Dr. Varma is now a professor of population health sciences at Weill Cornell Medical College, but he was, as many listeners will know, uh, for a little more than a year, senior advisor for public health under Mayor Bill de Blasio. And in that role, he led strategy and program development and so forth for the city's COVID-19 pandemic response. And he did quite a bit more, appearing regularly, of course, at the mayor's briefings, uh, no stranger to uh, the, the media in New York City, and therefore also the public for a lot of his insights and answers during a lot of those press briefings throughout parts of 2020 and into 2021. And even after officially leaving the administration, Dr. Varma continued as uh, an advisor to Mayor de Blasio throughout uh, 2021. Uh, he's had a long career fighting infectious diseases and working in public health. And we have a lot to discuss here as New York City enters a new phase of COVID policies under a new mayor. And Dr. Varma has been outspoken in recent weeks and disagreeing with some of the decisions being made in New York City right now in this battle against COVID-19. So we're going to get his perspective on those recent changes and much more. My conversation with Dr. Jay Varma in just a moment. If you've missed any of our recent episodes of the show here, you can find them all wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. And at that website, GothamGazette.com, you can, of course, also find all of our recent reporting, as well as the guest opinion columns we publish on a wide variety of topics and more. On the podcast recently, we've had some really great guests and interesting conversations, including most recently, Joanne Yu of the Asian American Federation to talk about the disturbing rise in hate crimes and violence against Asian American New Yorkers and what government should do about it. We've spoken recently with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander on his oversight of the city budget, work on nonprofit contracting, and much more. James Merriman of the New York City Charter School Center on the situation around charter schools in New York. City Council Member Sandy Nurse on waste management, trash recycling, and more on that. And that's just a sampling. We've had a lot of other great guests. We've talked about New York's uh, green energy goals and implementation of those programs and a lot of other interesting topics with elected officials, advocates, and others. So find all those podcasts, any of them, all of them uh, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette site. All right. Dr. Jay Varma is with me today. Dr. Varma, uh, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Great. Thank you for having me. As I said, you're now a professor of population health sciences at Weill Cornell Medical College and formerly senior advisor for public health under Mayor Bill de Blasio. You also have a lot more to your, to your resume, to your career. You've fought infectious diseases in China, Southeast Asia, Africa, and of course now in New York City. Uh, you had a, a, a tenure at the New York City Health Department before leaving and then coming back, at, and, and you've worked at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for about 10 years, including time embedded in China as director of the International Emerging Infections Program there. Uh, so that's just a sampling of, of your resume, and of course, folks can, can look it up. Um, so uh, widely referred to as an international expert here on the issues of disease prevention and control. So let me, let me jump right in with this question. Um, when we talk about trusting the science, uh, listening to the science, scientists disagree sometimes. What are we talking about when we say government policy, P 
people should trust the science and listen to the science? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I do think it's been one of the more challenging aspects of communication during this epidemic. Um, on the one hand, you're, you're absolutely correct that um, there is uh, never absolute certainty in science. You know, science is really about probabilities. What's the greatest likelihood um, that your theory about something is true? Um, and then you're constantly testing and refining that over time. Um, at the same time, there are, you know, a, there is a point at which you've done enough studies in enough different ways that you have a very high level of confidence that your theory, um, even though it may not be 100% certain, is there's really no other explanation that, that gets to where you are. And so what, what I think really is important when making public health policies is starting with the science and, and basically agreeing on what we know and what we don't know. And then for those things that that we don't know, you know, what is our best explanation for for, for how we can you know help somebody or, or prevent something from happening? But of course, that's not the only process in making policy. So it really needs to start with the science, not necessarily follow the science all the way through. Hmm. How badly has all of that been bungled on COVID nineteen in the United States and in in New York? So, you know, it, it's very much dependent upon on what jurisdiction that you're talking about, you know, mm -hmm. whether you're talking about the, the country as a whole or, or New York City in and of itself. So let, let's let's take the kind of the national picture uh, at first and then we can cone down into New York City. You know, at the national level, I mean, I, I do think there were, were certain things that were done right from the beginning. The most important of those uh, was this very large investment in developing a vaccine. And as we know uh, from the data here in New York City and the data nationally and the data globally, these are vaccines that are incredibly safe and incredibly effective. They have saved tens of thousands of lives here in New York City alone. And so that was a good thing. And that really did start with the science. We knew that this was a disease that could that, that you could prevent severe illness and death with the vaccines, and you could make an investment in development using both known technologies as well as new technologies to make that happen. Now, that's the good news. Now, the bad news, of course, is that um, there was this very large movement. Um, and by large, I don't necessarily mean large in, in population size. I mean sort of large in effect size. Um, you, know, some, you know, oftentimes the loudest people are not necessarily the greatest in number. They're just the ones that have the best microphones. Hmm. To, to constantly inject uncertainty and amplify uncertainty about this disease. Um, so, for example, saying that this is a disease that, or this is a virus that doesn't cause severe disease in, in anybody and we should just ignore it. Well, that it was demonstrably true. You could just simply look at the ICUs, you know, filling up in, in China or in Italy um, before it really had struck the United States and know that that was in fact wrong. And so I think this is an example in which there is ample room for debate about how severe the disease is in different populations, but sort of denying that it isn't going to cause widespread death and illness across the entire population is just simply wrong. And so, and I think that was a real challenge. You saw this challenge with messaging coming out of the White House during the Trump sure. administration. Um, and then of course, there's there's all of the issues about, about masks as well, which became a particularly contentious point. And this idea that, well, masks don't work. And, and this is again, another area in which people kind of use, you know, rhetoric and, and semantics um, to obfuscate what's a basic scientific fact. And the basic scientific fact is that, you know, covering your mouth and nose 
um, with a piece of fabricated material will both reduce the risk that you transmit infection to other people, as well as the risk that you will acquire it. Now, of course, the degree of benefit varies, but that's true with anything. You know, we don't get into this argument over seatbelts and say that, well, I heard somebody died in a car accident, therefore I'm never going to wear a seatbelt. Or I saw a policeman wearing a bulletproof vest and he got killed anyway, so I'm never going to wear one. So, you know, this but is that, an but, but that is but that is yeah. one example of where the some of the the public health leaders at, at all levels of government made some significant messaging mistakes, don't you think? Ah, uh, yeah. And so we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll this, talk this, about that in a yeah. moment. Yeah. Go ahead. So, so I, I just want to interrupt. Did you go ahead? Yeah. No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. And I'll stop right there. But just to basically say that these are examples in which I do think that even though science is about probabilities, it's not about certainties. There are often things that we know and get right. Um, but there is a real danger of kind of people using that uncertainty and exploiting it. You know, and this has been well established when it comes to climate change or tobacco sure. or other things. Now, let's get to 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 um, to your point. And this is one that, that has been a bit contentious. You know, if you if you kind of follow debates that are done online between people or academic public health who are who, in, in my mind, are also a bit unrealistic about their expectations. So many of them are, are just saying, you know, why can't public health people be, to be given all the authority to, to rule over society? <laughs> Uh, during these times, you know, and I'm a realist because I've spent so much of my time in public, you know, in government, actually practicing public health, not studying it, but actually practicing it in very diverse environments around the world. You have to recognize, of course, that, you know, that, that we have to use our system of democratic governance as the best way we have to adjudicate these decisions. So that's number one. So when people say, well, public health should never be politicized. You know, that ignores the fact that everything we do in public health is Impossible. a political decision. It is a decision about society, about what they value. And then the second is we can't also, you know, stop reflecting on the mistakes that we in public health made during this. And you absolutely rightly point out that the messaging from public health officials very early on, uh, both domestically and globally, at that time I was working on the global uh, operations and was actually part of the WHO committee that made these original masking recommendations, those were mistakes. And so there needs to be honest reflection. And, and I do think the primary blame for a lot of missteps is at the political and sort of sociological level. But it doesn't mean that people in public health didn't make tremendous mistakes as well, too. And they need to own those and, and, and stop them from happening in the future. Yeah, I, may, I would love to come back to, to some of this um, discussion in a few minutes, but I want to get, you know, focused on New York City for, for a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me in that in that part of the conversation, though, is, the, these pressures, these political pressures, um, obviously we saw it to, you know, an immense degree at the federal level under the Trump administration where the president's saying, you know, it's, it's all going to be gone and there's, there's nothing to worry about. And this is not a, this is not an issue. And you, you see the, you know, major issues with some of, uh, president Trump's, uh, appointees and, and their battles. Um, but also clearly, you know, some issues at the state level uh, in New York around this, around the, the nursing home decisions and so forth. And, and you know, without 100 percent clarity about what's going on behind the scenes, we don't we don't always know uh, what the actual public health recommendations are and what the politicians are overruling or they're tempering and, and so forth. But as you know, there's no way to really remove the, the politics um, uh, from, from public health decisions. Um New York City right now, we're, we're talking here on Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Dr. Jay Varma, when you tell New Yorkers, uh, where are we right now in the in this fight against COVID-19? How do you describe this moment? We've got 
uh, a pretty significant percentage of the population vaccinated, but there's some major gaps uh, in those numbers if you look closely. Uh, community spread seems quite low coming out of the Omicron variant uh, surge. Um, we're, we're, capture where we're at right now in, in this battle against this, this highly infectious disease. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the sort of the simplest metaphors um, that, that helps kind of contextualize this is, you know, for those of you who are, who are listening, I think I assume all of you are in the New York area. Yesterday was really nice and warm, right? You walked around outside and it was like over 60 degrees. And, you know, I had a short sleeve shirt on and I, you know, I felt great. I didn't put away my winter jacket, hat and gloves and uh, either stuff them in the back of my closet or burn them and throw them away. So we need to kind of look at where we're at with COVID right now. It is basically a sunny day, broadly speaking, as it relates to COVID. But one of the most important lessons that I have learned um, and that other sort of experts in this field has learned is about the importance of humility and the fact that we just simply cannot predict what this virus will do next. I would very much hope that, you know, Omicron is sort of the last of the variants and that uh, because we had such a massive um, surge in infections before, that either through vaccination or the combination of vaccination and infection, that people are protected for a long time. But I don't know that fact. And, And the simple reality is that every time we have made a rosy prediction about the future, that winter wouldn't come again, that, you know, finally we're into to spring and summer and it's going to last forever. We've been wrong. So so I feel very strongly that um, people should be, you know, enjoying the, 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 the weather we have right now. But government and businesses and individuals need to be prepared for the, the very real possibility that we could get a surge due to a new variant uh, or that immunity from this uh, current strain, Omicron, is not long lasting and people could get reinfected and severely reinfected. I think that's one of the most interesting points uh, about where we're at, because you have uh, so many New Yorkers who, who are fully vaccinated, but the, the total percentage of the population is still 77% uh, of the New York City population. Now that includes all children, uh, five to 12, you know, is still relatively recently um, uh, eligible for, the, for vaccination, although it's been a little while now and those numbers really are lagging. Um, but that's, that's the entire population, 77% about. But that's it, well, assess that number. I'm not going to assess it. You assess it. What do you yeah. make of that number? And the, the the caveats that you just gave about other variants, about you know waning effectiveness of of the vaccine. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah. So there's good news and bad news all mixed in together. So let's just kind of repeat. You know, go one by one so the listeners get an understanding of of what's good and what's bad. So the good thing is a large percentage of the New York City population has received um, uh, a single dose of the vaccine, like an extraordinarily high percentage. Um, Secondarily, a large percentage of those people, you know, over 90% of those people who got a single dose end up getting a second dose of the vaccine. Um, Those rates are particularly high among the adult population, which is the population that we care about the most for this disease, simply because um, the complications tend to be more severe and that they very much track by age. Um, So uh, that's the good news. Um, Now, let's look at things that's not so good. Um, Among those adults, there are clearly pockets of people, particularly, you know, black adults um, who have lower vaccination rates. I think as of today, I think it's something like over 30 percent of black adults um, remain unvaccinated in New York. Um, And this has, you know, a very long route in 
in in in very appropriate distrust of, of you know of government intervention you know from 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 you know this this dates back to you know systemic racism it dates back to real medical experiments so so I don't ex- I don't um uh, I I don't want to you know sort of place blame in any way but at the same time it's it's a very real problem um, second of all third of all you know in terms of 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 not so great news uh, we have you know, large swaths of, of parents who have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And we know that this infection is not entirely benign in kids. And I use the word benign very purposefully. I mean that while it doesn't lead to large numbers of children dying, you know, we, and I'm a parent myself, I have three kids, you know, I, I think universally across the human race, you know, we have a lower threshold for, for the risk we're willing to let our kids accept than we are ourselves. You know, it's one thing for an adult to say, oh, I was really sick and I had to go to the hospital, but now I'm better. But boy, if that happens to your child, that's a whole other different level. And so, so, so that's one thing. So we know that kids are at much lower risk and it's very rare for kids to die of this, but some kids do get severely ill and, and we need to be much more cautious about that. But, you know, the second piece to that is that we still don't really understand the long-term complications of this disease. Um, you know, we learn every day about, uh, you know, brain injury or, or dysfunction in your, your blood vessels. And so we need to be a bit cautious. So, so that's sort of the, 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 the other piece of bad news is, is that we don't really have the pockets of protection. And then the last point I'll make on this is really kind of about the science, which is that, you know, what we are learning over time, and, and this isn't absolute, but it's but I think it's the very real scientific consensus. And I think it's something that we should focus on is that this really does appear to be a three dose vaccine, which means that, you know, very early on, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical companies in collaboration with the government did not want to test a a three dose regimen because the reality is it would take you a lot longer to prove it works. There wasn't a lot of good data from the animal models to suggest that you needed three doses. And there was always the danger that if you say it's a three dose vaccine, it gets harder and harder to get the population fully vaccinated. So the pharmaceutical companies in collaboration with, you know, experts in the federal government decided to test, you know, primarily not for the J&J one, decided to primarily test a two dose regimen. That appeared to work very well, but it also appeared to wane over time, your protection. So the other sort of piece of bad news here is, is I feel really strongly that particularly among adults, they should be getting three doses of this vaccine. And we don't see anywhere near the uptake of that. People seem to think two doses was enough and three is a bonus as opposed to three being the, the requirement. Yeah. Uh, let me let me come back to what you're getting at, which is it's multifaceted, but also speaks to this issue of, of quote unquote COVID fatigue. But um, at 77 percent of the New York City population fully vaccinated, um, uh, again, I, understanding your points about about children and and perhaps there being you know somewhat less urgency uh, around that, but but also to your point that parents don't want you know their children to be to be sick or or God forbid die. Um, but but at that at that level of vaccination, how risky is that? I mean that that is not a, a, a very high number. It's a high number, but does that mean New York City itself is at risk of uh, incubating another variant is that um, you know what what kind of what kind of numbers do we really need to see in New York City? Does it not really matter because it's such a global city and, and people are going to be moving in and out and bringing things all the time anyway? What you know what number would you want to see? And and are we not seeing enough urgency from our governments about raising these numbers? 
So this becomes a much trickier question than I would wish I could answer. Mm-hmm. I think that that um, what policymakers want to hear, what the public wants to hear, is that when we get to you know ninety percent or ninety five percent in this population, then we can guarantee that we're we're done with COVID. Let's let's think mm-hmm. of this like you know uh, polio or measles and say you know what this isn't really a problem anymore. We don't need to deal with it. And I really wish I knew that number. And I just have to be very honest with you. We don't actually know the answer to that. I, I personally thought that our level of vaccination that we had before the Omicron surge would protect our hospitals from not being overrun with COVID patients, because I thought that such a high percentage of adults, particularly older adults, had gotten vaccinated that we wouldn't see a surge. But we did. Now, the vast majority of those infections, I think over 95, 90 percent of them were in unvaccinated people. But never enough, the you know, you know, the number of beds we have and the size of our population and, and percentages don't tell the story. Right. It's absolute numbers because there's a literally a limited number of, mm-hmm. of of physical beds and staff that can handle them. That was still not enough you know, that that our hospitals suffered greatly for several weeks. And it's not just the hospitals. It's not saying, oh, you know, what was me? The hospital didn't work well. That meant people who had heart attacks, people who had diabetes, people who had leg injuries couldn't actually get the medical care they needed. So so I, I think that what, what I feel very strongly about is that we need to be striving for close to 100% vaccination, it, particularly in adults, simply because the greatest threat that we have to our city as a whole, not just to individuals, but as a whole, is another sort of rush on our healthcare system that exhausts already exhausted health workers and puts other New Yorkers at risk from their other medical problems. And the single best way we have to do that is to get the highest level of vaccination and not just with two doses, but with three doses. Right, right. Um, and then there are other priorities, you know, getting children vaccinated so they can stay healthy and reduce transition. But if you had to pick one metric, I would say very high levels, as close to 100% as you could get, maybe say 95%, in adults with three doses of vaccine. And that's really where we need to be, at least right now. Um, you, uh, how, how much of a pro- proponent of, of vaccine mandates, whether it's uh, these workforce mandates, public and private sector, uh, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Daily News criticizing Mayor Adams for rolling back the key to NYC program that required proof of vaccination for, for activities like indoor dining. How big a proponent of vaccine mandates have you been? It seems like a, a big one, considering you helped uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, craft the key to NYC program and, and wrote what you just wrote. Um, and should they go, should they not only not be rolled back, but is there ways they should go further right now? Yeah, so I'll admit my bias from the beginning. I am a vaccine zealot. Vaccines are, you know, one of the most incredible innovations that have extended um, lives throughout the world, um, and 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 believe very strongly in them. You know, and and also believe that the systems we have in place are really strong at making them safe and secure. Um, so that's bias number one. Bias number two is. I am the one that was pestering the mayor literally from the moment vaccines were released, you know, in December 2020 and making it clear that we are not going to achieve the vaccination levels we get in the city without uh, mandates of some sort. And was basically on top of him in every phone call saying, 
you know, carrots are good, you know, like incentives to get vaccinated, you know, money, uh, lottery tickets, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But sooner or later, you're going to need the sticks. And and it was really um, and, you know, he was one of the things I I really appreciated about the mayor. I mean, and and give him enormous credit for is that, you know, after those those kind of early missteps and and fighting and, and challenging back in March 2020, you know, he brought me in, he brought in a whole health team and he spent hours every day listening to our listening to us, um, you know, you know, you know, testing us on our thoughts, but but, you know, but really listening. And so and so that's when things change. You know, we really in in the summer of 2021, as we saw Delta take over, he said, "Okay, you're right. We need to put these in place. Now, here's my concern. My concern is that, um, you know, we know from every vaccine on Earth and the way this always works is that it's very hard to reach high levels of vaccination in adults. The way we normally do this is we vaccinate young kids mm-hmm. and we wait 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. why do kids get, um, you know, the hepatitis B vaccine, for example, at birth? It's not because kids are at very high risk of contact, getting hep- hepatitis B from blood or from sex. It's because they become adults before we know it and we need them <laughs> vaccinated. Now, so, but we can't do that with this, with COVID for, for two reasons. One, because COVID is a threat literally right now to adults, number one. And number two is, uh, you know, and so we can't wait 20 years. And number two is we don't have vaccines approved for children under the age of five yet. So we can't wait. So we have to basically have a strategy that ensures that we close all of those gaps in vaccination that we have right now. Um, and one of the ways to do that is workforce mandates and, and business mandates. Now that's that's reaching high levels of vaccination. Now, the second thing that we know is even if you reach high levels of vaccination in adults, though they don't remain static. You know, what happens in a city like New York? People move in, people move out, right? And so by definition, because New York has very high levels of vaccination compared to the rest of the country and the rest of the world, you're going to get more unvaccinated people moving into the city than you are vaccinated people. So the only way to maintain high levels of vaccination in your adults is to have it be normative behavior. And by that, I mean... You have to show a vaccine to go into museums or theaters or restaurants. What's going to happen? People are inconvenienced. They're going to just get vaccinated, even if they don't believe it or not. You want to work in the city. You know, the vast majority of adults in the city either work or are in a higher education facility. I don't think any universities in New York are pulling back their vaccine requirements, too. So if you have that in workers, you're going to maintain high levels. So, again, vaccine mandates help get high levels, get there and help you stay at that level. And I think that's why they're so important to, to keep um, and potentially expand if there's the political will. But but unfortunately, to be honest, I don't see that political will to expand right now. Right. Clearly, clearly that's not there since since some of it's being rolled back. Only some of it. Uh, obviously, Mayor Adams is keeping in place, at least for now, the the mandates for the public workforce and, and private workforces. Um, I mean, I think you hit on one of the key things, and, and this is this is something that seems to you know be really tricky to message, and and was messaged at, at some points, which is, you know, this idea of people pushing back about showing a, a vaccination, uh, and, and and again, that wasn't that wasn't certainly. Uh, the vast majority, as you said early in this conversation, you know, the loudest voices aren't necessarily indicative of, of some majority, but, um, but this, this, you know, this sort of um, pushback against sort of showing vaccination to, to go places and do things hits to your point about the fact that we've only been able to vaccinate against this 
really, you know, in adults, we weren't able to capture everybody in their first few years like we do with so much else. And that's why we don't need to ask for proof because we ask for proof to go to school. And then it's basically, it's basically been over. Um, and, and that's been, you know, pretty tricky, you know, piece of the, I think, public sort of messaging and public relations challenge of, of all this. Um, what if you were designing the policies right now? Uh, what what would they be on vaccine mandates? You, you you wouldn't have rolled back the key to NYC, so so it would still be required to show vaccination for indoor dining, for entertainment, and so forth. Gyms, anything else? Yeah. So if I was let, let's say I was mayor for the day, <laughs> um, or, or or mayor for for a week or something like or that. Little, so so yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna so I'm gonna separate out because you know there's the plus. Let's assume for the moment that I had even more than the mayor. I, I was, you know, king of New York for, for a week or two. Yep. This is what I think the ideal policy is. And the way I, I approach these policy discussions when I'm talking to, you know, the mayor or, or to, you know, the previous mayor and other people like that is I always start with the ideals. Like, this is what I would really like. Now I can, well, let's walk it back based on mm-hmm. what's feasible and acceptable. But what we'd ideally have is we would have, you know, vaccine verification at all, at, at basically a larger swath of, of facilities, you know, early on, we had to make decisions because of the way the policy was designed. And so we emphasized places that we know from kind of broader epidemiologic studies are higher risk, you know, places where people are not remaining, you know, people have a, are going to be unmasked for larger periods of time, such as, you know, restaurants and bars because they're eating, the activities are occurring indoors and you're mixing together people from different households. So, and so that was kind of the concept of it, you know, focus on those areas first. So I would, I would expand it to, you know, uh, cosmetics and, you know, you know, barber shops and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, nail salons, nail salons and massage places and stuff like that. So other retail steps. And, and we had a plan for this too. Like we had proposed this to the mayor as well too. So, so it's not like that list doesn't exist somewhere, you know, of additional mm-hmm. facilities. That's number one. Number two is I would expand it to require a third dose of vaccine. Mm-hmm. And now that would have to be phased in over time. So, you know, the policy decision would be to say, you know, give it a few months here, or a few months there, but before, you know, at, at a very least before, let's say, you know, the, the fall, when we expect, you know, weather to change and surge will almost certainly occur again, we would require a three doses of vaccine, at least for adults, which in whom it's, you know, or, or teens and above in whom it's, it's, that's, that's sort of approved and uh, right now. Um, so those are kind of the, the two most important mm-hmm. things I would, I would, I would do. And, and, and the school reason- requirement for, for next year. Yeah, so this is a little trickier, and and the reason it is trickier is I, I even though I you know believe the data on these vaccines because I you know you've know, looked at the studies that have been done and, and the quality of them and, and reviewed what's been done, um, I, I do think that school mandates can be more challenging because the you know there are parents that 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 push back hard on on. Um, on on this and might risk you know having their kids stay out of school. So for me, I, I do feel strongly that we need to get to school mandates. But for me, basically the, the the thresholds are number one. I would want the FDA to have fully approved these vaccines. And so just for your audience that may not be aware, there's what's called authorization and there's called approval. Currently for the childhood vaccines, we are at a stage called authorization, which means the FDA has seen really good data, but because there's also a public health emergency, it hasn't been able to follow its normal regulatory process where they review like every little bit of manufacturing and, and they follow people out for a longer period of time. And, you know, it's just a larger. So once we get to full approval, 
I personally feel that we should start to have mandates for school entry. Um, and those would probably have to be phased in a time. So one of the ways to sort of uh, to get higher rates. And this is one of the things we did under Mayor de Blasio, and he gets, should get enormous credit for having the political courage to do this, is he was resistant, even though I pushed on, on actually putting in vaccine mandates earlier on for at least for the teens. You, we, we settled on a compromise, which worked pretty well, which is that, okay, to go to academic programs, like to be in class during that normal, whatever, eight to three schedule, you don't need to show vaccination. You want to do anything else that's school related, you have to get vaccinated. And, you know, one of the most important things was the requirement for athletics, you know, and kids above yeah. the, you know, 12 and 13, a large percentage of the New York City kids are in those programs. So that's another way to kind of backdoor this is, is both through the vaccine, you know, verification at a larger number of places for five and up, that'll kind of push behavior. And the second is to do it for, for ex other activities. And then once it becomes fully approved by the FDA, then to then sort of phase in vaccine requirements over time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the mayor was was fairly frank about some of this, and it's a really interesting point about vaccine hesitancy in certain communities and how that extends to to children. Obviously, children, you know, are not the mostly the decision makers, especially as young as you know five, six, seven, uh, and so forth. And this and this question of risk of of kids not going to school and then what do you do uh, after that and it's a very a very tricky slope especially when you see some of the racial and ethnic breakdown of some of these numbers as you got at some of the very uh high percentage of unvaccinated black new yorkers there's also there's also some big gaps among among white new yorkers you know uh in the four broadest you know biggest categories of, of population demographics by race and ethnicity uh, Asian New Yorkers and Latino New Yorkers are, are, are pretty well above black and white New Yorkers. Um, and, and there's obviously then you get into some different uh, calculations than what you brought up about black New Yorkers and trust in, in health care. You get into uh, for many, you know, it seems like for, for certain white populations in the city, you're talking more about certain political uh, beliefs and, and affiliations. And, and, and it gets it gets very tricky uh, in a number of ways here in, in terms of the pushback against the mandates that have already existed existed, not to mention others. Um, uh, the three doses fully vaccinated, where are we at in understanding if if this will need a season, a, a, an annual booster or some other, you know, where where are we at in, in understanding whether three is actually the potential end or if it is something that would need an annual uh, inoculation? Yeah. And unfortunately, again, this is an area where there's um, no like perfect scientific answer to. Um, and, and the answer is that, you know, in an ideal world, you know, scientists would have some way to kind of like test everybody right now and predict, you know, what your body's immune system will do one or two years out from now, right? <laughs> like that we would know that, okay, you've reached this level of antibodies or this level of, of cellular response. And that indicates that you will be protected for X numbers of years. We don't actually have that in science. And it's the reason we even do vaccine trials. The reason we have to take, you know, 15,000 people and give them a, a saline injection and take another 15,000 people and give them a vaccine to compare things is because we can't predict this stuff. We actually need to evaluate it in humans and we don't have a time machine, you know, to accelerate time forward. So, and the reason I, I start with all that is to say that I really don't know how long a protection against severe disease will last in, you know, people who have received three doses of vaccine. I would like to hope, I, you know, I hope 
that it is many years and that we don't require, uh, you know, repeated vaccinations. But the reality is that based on the way this virus is mutating, based on seasonal surges, based on what we've seen on immunity so far, I think it's very likely that we will encourage, maybe not require, but encourage people to get um, an annual vaccination somewhat in line with getting a flu vaccination. Um, And so flu is an example of where you get a booster dose every year because the virus changes a little bit and your immunity changes. You know, people don't even think about tetanus shots. You know, you go to the doctor and you Mm -hmm. got a cut and they say, when is the last time you get a tetanus shot? Well, that's a booster. That's because your body's immune system doesn't stay on forever. Uh, I don't know how much of your audience travels internationally. I mean, most of my life was spent working in the developing world. You have to get a repeated typhoid vaccines or, uh, you know, vaccines for lots of diseases on on a regular basis. So it may very well be that's the case. We don't have an absolute answer to that right now. And and my expectation is that, um, you know, that we'll probably need that. But we kind of have to wait and see what happens over time. At this point, from what we know right now, I think three doses of vaccine for adults. We know it is safe. And um, and, you know, I'm full. I've got three doses of vaccine. My wife hasn't. All three of my kids who are 17 through 22 have gotten three doses. Um, this is not something I say lightly. It's something I say from direct personal experience. I have three doses as well. Um, we're, we're in our last couple of minutes here with Dr. Jay Varma, professor of population health sciences at Weill Cornell Medical College and former senior advisor for public health under Mayor Bill de Blasio, along with a bunch of other formers that I won't list off now, uh, but you can look up Dr. Varma's uh, resume online. Uh, last couple of questions, Dr. Varma, and, and I very much appreciate the time. Um, is there one or two other things that you can let uh, our listeners know here that they should know about New York City's response to COVID-19? You know, you've sort of lifted the veil a little bit on your relationship with Mayor de Blasio and some of the things he hesitated on, then listened on, some stuff where you give him massive credit. Uh, you wrote, I believe, in The Times about um uh, you know, uh, the the biggest uh, mistake, perhaps, of, of reclosing schools at one point. Um, anything else that's really important for folks to know now that, you know, the mayor's out of office and you're not working in city government anymore that, you know, helps people understand some of the decisions that were made? Any one other example you could point to? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you guess sort of you know, looking back a little bit on, on the time I had, you know, like I said, I, I give this mayor enormous credit for um, really listening to me, uh, Dr. Chakshi, Dr. Long, Dr. Katz. Um, and, and I say this again, having spent tremendous amount of time in government, I didn't come back to New York City because I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm aligned with New York City politics anyway. I came back, you know, as a public servant and somebody who spent his whole life doing this. You know, it's like fires burning. I, I don't really care who the governor or the mayor is. I just care mm-hmm. about helping to put it out because that's what I was trained to do. And, you know, the credit he gets for this is, you know, basically listening and spending tremendous amounts of time with us. And, and I can just tell you from my experience in government, it is rare to have an elected official want to hear you know, and dive deeply into the information. Now, and as people who know have written about the mayor know very well, this isn't necessarily always the best thing, right? I mean, obviously right. it takes him a while to make decisions. You know, he's yeah. not as, I, I, I also wish, and, you know, he knows this himself, but, you know, I also wish he would, you know, be a little bit more forthright and say, okay, I've heard enough. We're deciding right now. And he does take time to make decisions, but to his credit during this experience, the best thing a technocrat like myself, an expert in a field can want is not to be able to make the decision, but to make sure our, our voices are heard and, and respected in a way. And that was good. So that's one thing he gets credit for. Another thing I think he gets enormous credit for is the courage, political courage it took to come out front and push vaccine verification and vaccine mandates. 
I mean, you saw the tremendous pushback from the, the business community um, across the board. Just, you know, he's a he's a Brooklyner and it's going to keep, uh, uh, you know, the New York Nets potentially from winning an NBA champion. These are not like little things. And so, you know, he showed tremendous courage. And, and all of us in our, in our public health, you know, team that worked with him were, you know, even though I wish he'd acted sooner. I mean, I'm not the one I'm not the one elected. Right. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know, I'm always going to push for the most extreme version. And it's his job to balance that with political rally. So he did a great job with that. You know, problems that we had. I mean, I think the I think they've really been highlighted. I mean, really, the single biggest thing that held us back. You know, I landed here in on April fourth of twenty twenty. I was in Ethiopia up until that time. Got contacted originally by Corey Johnson and then by Emma Wolf, and then spoke to the mayor himself to come back. I, you know, had experience working with the city state politics when I was the deputy commissioner of health during Ebola, during Legionnaires. And, you know, we were always over to stay one step ahead of the state. So even though they were trying to mess with us, you know, and, and mess things up, we were always ahead of them and made it to do those things right. During COVID, you know, this overwhelmed everybody. And this was far and away the biggest challenge. And, and I just, and again, I'm, I'm not doing this because I'm, you know, a political apologist. And I'm just trying to give you a real insight into things. The people in City Hall that were working on this, not just the mayor, but, you know, the deputy mayors, Emma Wolf and Dean Fullahan and Mel Hartsog. You know, these are really dedicated people that were trying to do the right thing. And we were just stymied left and right by this desire from, you know, people in Albany to be seen as getting the credit and making the decisions. Even when, you know, this is a disease that really does require local management. And, and I don't disavow, even though I disagree strongly with what's going on in places like Florida and other sort of southern and midwestern states. I'm also a fan of democracy. And I'm willing to say that, you know, if your local values are such that you don't care about your hospitals being overrun, well, you know, that is your decision, right? Um, but here locally, I think New York City needed that that control. And, and I think we did the best we could, but, you know, our hands were tied during a lot of these things. Interesting. Last question. You started to just do this a little bit, but you have such global experience. I was wondering if you could put into context sort of in this period that you've been in New York City amidst this this emergency, this crisis, this public health uh, uh, a crisis of, of such immense uh, proportions, uh, in terms of sort of, or however you want to frame this, this is my layman's way of asking it, but in terms of our New York City sort of society and culture and norms and public health, are there are there ways that you can put it into some global perspective for people in understanding ways in which we are just excellent or ways in which we are totally uh, off and just don't understand uh, what, you know, type of, of society sort of, you know, needs uh, there are in terms in terms of collective public health? Are, are, is there any way to put that in some global perspective as a as a final thought here? Yeah, I mean, I think New York City is different than other parts of the United States. I think the, the vast majority of the U.S. suffered because of, of, of really two big problems. One is lack of trust in government and, 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 and government institutions, number one. And number two is lack of trust in each other. So interpersonal trust, you know, because, again, if, if, you, if you don't believe government, if you see your neighbors getting vaccinated, you're going to be more likely to do that. I think New York City, and one of the things I love about New York City, and, my, and the reason my, my wife and kids were so insistent that when we stop our international world that we, you know, we settle down here like we have, was because I do think New York City has strong that. The New York City Health Department is a tremendous institution. You know, Commissioner Chokshi led 
you know, led these incredible public education campaigns and, 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 and hired people, particularly people of color who are, who are incredibly smart and talented and engaging communities. So I think really built that institutional trust. And I think the city as a whole, you know, we saw some of this play out in, in the school system. You know, I think DOE does have, I, I mean, I, I get great relationships with the, with the DOE leadership, but again, there are challenges and trust, you know, across the school system. But broadly speaking, New Yorkers trust their government institutions, number one. And number two, this is a city where people kind of band together, right? And they they align together. And this is one of the reasons I'm such a fan of kind of local control of some of these issues that I do think New York City did something that was really demonstrable to me from my work in Asia. You know, I spent three years in China. I spent five years in Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam, where there is strong trust in, in government institutions. And even when there isn't, for example, among sort of skeptical Chinese, for example, they kind of trust their neighbors to do the right thing. And I think New York City was good about that. I, I wish I had seen more of it probably when I first landed here. I wish I'd seen more like um, social help programs. You know, when I when I first got here in April 2020, I spoke to the head of sort of the equivalent of the CDC in, in Germany, the Robert Koch Institute. And he told me that, well, they don't have any other program to provide, um, you know, meals or, or, uh, or support to people in their homes because all the neighbors do it. <laughs> Mm. And so I, I do think New York City has something to learn about that, but I do think we did a better job of that. And I, I think the second piece, and this is more COVID specific, is, um, uh, you know, East Asia learned, you know, when, when I first arrived in, in Bangkok in 2003 for work, um, you know, that was right in the wake of the first SARS epidemic. Um, and I've been visiting there off and on since, since 2002. Um, and, you know, East Asian in, in megacities learned very early on that epidemics can destroy your society, right? Just the same lesson that the U.S. learned from terrorism, they learned from infectious diseases. And so what I'm really hoping is that and in Africa, this has already been well known. You know, people in Africa are, are routinely used to seeing, you know, widespread infectious disease outbreaks disrupt their businesses and, and their lives. So there's a very real recognition of that threat. And I think that if the U.S. had had that humility, and the same applies to Europe, if the U.S. and Europe had had that humility and understood that, they would have responded faster earlier on. And so my hope is that also that learning from the global experience that people will be sooner to put on masks to follow public health guidance about whether it's staying at home or, you know, maybe it has to do with hand washing because it's a different type of disease. We'll follow that earlier. Um, mm. And so I, you know, I really hope that's true. And I would say the last point related to that is I do think that if government in the U S really wants to shift from collective responsibility to individual responsibility, it has to do what other countries do, which is make those tools available. And you go to like South Korea or, 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 or places in, in certain European countries, you know, test kits are like pennies, you know, high quality masks, not like cloth masks, but a high quality N95 equivalent to masks are available to everybody. So we as a society need to take that seriously. I, I'm OK with a government because I, I choose to live in the United States that wants a more individualistic approach. But I want government to give people the tools and make them available for everything. We can definitely learn that from other societies. One of your lines from your recent Daily News column uh, that, that you know, has stuck with me, uh, which, you know, it's a little bit obvious, but it just, you know, put so poignantly that you just got at is this this line that says the most important lesson from smoking, motor vehicle safety and other successful public health initiatives that govern, government needs to make healthy choices convenient and unhealthy choices inconvenient. But even just the healthy choices convenient part is so, so key uh, and it's something that Mayor Adams is talking about, about healthy food and so forth. And we could we could get into a whole lot of that. But but you just hit on that. And it it reminded me of that line that I wanted to um, to read out. And obviously, folks should find the full uh, column. 
Uh, I have a thousand other things to ask you, but um, you've been gracious with your time. Uh, Dr. Jay Varma, thank you. Thank you very much for the talk. I think people will find this very uh, interesting and enlightening and, and good luck in the still relatively new position at Wild Cornell Medical College and, uh, and we'll be in touch. Great. Thank you very much for having thank me. Thank you.